0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, and and I want to encourage you if you are able to stand for the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to read from verses 7 to 11. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Father God. Father, we cast ourselves upon you. Father, we lean upon your strong and everlasting arms. Oh, Heavenly Father, how weak we are. Oh, Heavenly Father, how dependent are we upon your grace? How dependent are we upon your strength? Father God, I pray that you would supply the preacher and you would supply his congregation tonight with with your grace and with your strength. Father, that we would glorify you in worshiping you, worshiping you through the preaching of your word, worshiping you through the listening to your word, Father God, I pray that your spirit would take these truths, would take the truths of your scripture, Father, and that they would be implanted upon my heart, that they would be impressed upon the hearts of my hearers. Oh, Father God, let us not glory in ourselves, for it is to you that dominion and glory belongs. In Jesus' name, forever and ever, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now... One of the things that you've been so often reminded of as we've been going through the first epistle of Peter, uh, I always try to encourage during Bible study that we remember these three rules, and those three rules are this, context, 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 seems simple enough. And so when you look at the, the opening of Peter's epistle, you will notice that he addresses his readers as the elect exiles. Now, unfortunately, one thing that we have, or that I have, neglected to emphasize, just because it seems rather obvious, is the fact that that, that phrase there, elect exiles, that is put in the plural. That is not singular. Now, that is very important. It's very important that we understand that. It's very important that I understand that. Why? Well, because Peter is not addressing the Christian as one who is an individual, as one who is a lone wolf, as one who is detached from others. No. He writes to the elect exiles. Plural. And and, and this really ties in to what he emphasizes in this passage of Scripture tonight. Now, we've talked about the importance of that phrase being exiles, being sojourners and strangers in this life. It should be no surprise to anyone in this room tonight that the Christian life was never intended to be easy, okay? The Christian life, it's not a free ride in a particular sense of understanding that. Christian life is not to be an easy life. We are to expect suffering. We are to expect hardship. Now anyone who tells you otherwise is either ignorant of the scriptures or they are deceiving you for some other purpose. Now what that purpose is I do not know, but the fact of the matter is the normative experience Christians are to expect is is one of hardship, one of suffering. We look to Jesus Christ is our great example. Jesus Christ is our model for how we are to live our lives. And one of the things that I find so striking about Jesus Christ is how there is a sense in which I am to strive to live like him, but yet truthfully I can't. Yet truthfully, Jesus Christ is the standard for how I should live my life It's like I'm being told to do the impossible, for his standard is perfect. He fulfills God's law. He fulfills God's statutes perfectly. And, And I can't do that, and that afflicts me, and that causes conviction within my heart and within my soul. Yet nevertheless, what am I told to do? I'm told to live like him. Peter describes Jesus as our example. And the word that he uses there literally refers to a person learning the alphabet by tracing it on a piece of paper. That is how, to the, to the nose, I am supposed to be following after him. And yet I can't do it. I can't do it. But there is really a sense in which I can do it. Now, what am I talking about? It's because I don't do it in my own strength. I don't do it carnally. The ability to live like Jesus Christ does not come for me. And that is my great comfort, my great encouragement. It does not come for me, but it comes from above. John chapter 3, Jesus says you must be born again. And in, in the original language, it's literally birth from above. It's a, it, it, it is a strength. It is a power that comes from outside of me. You see, God equips me. His spirit indwells me so that I can actually dream of of fulfilling what it is I ought to do, and that is to live like Jesus. Now, Jesus, just as we suffered, he suffered greatly. He suffered far more greatly than I ever will. Why? Because I will never endure and experience the wrath of God. I I will never do that. Why? Because Jesus Christ did it for me. What does that mean? It means he did it for me. It means he actually did suffer and endure the wrath of the Father. So that I wouldn't have to. Now that is a level of suffering that I don't need to experience. Here's what's so fascinating about that very statement though. You see, because it's almost a contradiction. Now it's not a contradiction. There are no contradictions in scripture. But you see, as Jesus was suffering, what does Peter say? Peter says that Jesus was able to persevere through this. Because he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued to entrust himself to the Father, knowing that his Father would vindicate him of his present trials. Now, Jesus is my example. And when Jesus suffered, he continued entrusting himself to the Father. What does that mean? It means I need to continue entrusting myself to the Father. And What's so precious to me and what should be so precious to you is that God loves you. And not only does he give you grace, does he send the Holy Spirit to empower you, but he also gives us instruction. and He gives us instruction. He gives us means of grace that we might in our lives continue to entrust ourselves to him. Three things I want to mention. The first is this, and that is the word of God. The Word of God, your Bible, do not neglect it. Do not neglect it for a moment. Amen. Do not seek to find strength. Do not seek to find encouragement. Do not seek to find wisdom. Do not seek to find guidance or instruction anywhere other than the pages of Scripture. It can be so easy to want to do that. Why? Because our flesh hates the Scripture. Our flesh, even when we are converted, there is still an inner spiritual warfare. So the first thing he gives us is the word of God. Second, prayer. I cannot tell you how important personal prayer is. I cannot tell you how necessary it is for everyone in this room to have that personal communion with God. To have that personal fellowship with Him. To have that personal relationship with Him. Now, The third thing he gives us, and this is what we really need to be talking about as it relates to tonight's passage, is he has given us the church. We need to recognize what a wonderful blessing the church truly is. Beloved, God has given us each other. He has given me you, all right? Congregation, you are a gift to me, and he has given you me. Now, I do not mean that in some arrogant sense, saying that I'm God's gift to the world or anything like that. I'm simply saying the fact that you and I can fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is a blessing. It is a tremendous blessing. We draw near to God when we are fellowshipping with His people who are indwelt with the Spirit. Do you realize that every Christian Worshiping here tonight is dwelt with the Spirit of God, and and, and we are gathered to worship Him. Now, now this is a marvelous thing, yet just like those other two things, studying Scripture, prayer, it's not only a gift, but it's sort of like a, a talent. It's something that we are entrusted with, that we are to use. It's a responsibility that we have. We are in error when we neglect to take advantage of the Word of God. We are in error when we neglect to take advantage of prayer. We are in error when we neglect to take advantage of the local church. You know, I am convinced that, among other things, one of the most undervalued and overlooked aspects of the Christian life in our modern culture is the local church. You see, we do not care for the local church. We do not love the local church. But here's the problem. In the context of living the Christian life as an exile in a hostile world, Peter writes concerning the nature of Christian fellowship. If we are going to persevere through our suffering, we must acquaint ourselves with the local Christian fellowship. We cannot neglect this. And so in verses 7 through 11 in chapter 4, Peter will be illustrating for us what that looks like. Now, in verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, the way in which he introduces this topic to us cannot be overlooked. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Now, really, there are two things being communicated there. Uh, The first is simply that time is running out. Time is of the essence and the idea of the end of all things being at hand communicates the coming judgment that accompanies that. This, th- these are the things that Peter is communicating to us. Time is of the essence. Time is running out. Every moment passes a moment lost that we can't regain. And every single moment passes one moment closer to when you and I We'll stand before God, and we will have to give an account to him for how we use our time. We will have to give an account to him for how we used our lives. Jonathan Jonathan Edwards said, time is so precious because a happy or miserable eternity depends upon it. So if that's the case, and Peter's saying the end of all things is at hand, well, then what he goes on to say is he says, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, it's interesting that in verse 3 of chapter 4, Peter describes almost a sort of Cyrenaic hedonism. Now, what's that? Well, you have people who are living solely for the pleasure of the moment. He describes... The way that the Gentiles want to live in in verse 3, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And he obviously contrasts this with how the Christians are to live. The Christians are not to live enslaved to their passions. The Christians are not to live enslaved to their vain emotions. The Christians are not to live enslaved to their flesh. No, the Christian is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. You see, the value of the moment and the preciousness of time is so great, we cannot afford to be people who are living solely for the moment. Remember Peter's exhortation in chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Loved ones, we are at war. We are at war with the passions of our flesh and we cannot be consumed to them. We cannot be enslaved to them. But instead, because of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, which means your time is running out, my time is running out, we will have to stand before God in righteous judgment. We must be self-controlled and we must be sober-minded. And Peter adds this, he says, for the sake of your prayers. Remembering again, what's the context? Context is of suffering. Well, listen, my friends, as many of you who have been walking with the Lord for a long time know, how important is prayer when you're suffering? How important is prayer when you are downcast? How important is prayer when you are afflicted? Well, if we're going to be praying effectively, if we're going to be praying appropriately, we need to be people who are self-controlled, sober-minded, We need to be people who are able to analyze our surroundings, analyze, evaluate the moment that we are in so that we can pray accordingly. Verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Beloved, and, and, and I truly cannot express this enough, it is so important important that you and I love one another. It is so important. You say, well, aren't Christians supposed to love everyone? You so you're absolutely correct. Even the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter six, what's he say? He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. But then Paul goes on. He says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, in the New Testament, love amongst the brethren is is placed in a special category. Even in Peter's letter here, he gives specific commands and instructions to love the brotherhood. Sometimes we can be so self-centered. Sometimes we can be so individualistic. But the Bible teaches every believer is a child of God. And in our self-centered uh, self-focused nature. We love that, and, and we should love that. Why would you not love that? It is a lovely thing to contemplate the fact that God has adopted me to himself through His as a son to the praise of his glorious grace. But we also need to remember this. All of God's other children, whom he has adopted for himself to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, God loves my fellow believer no more or no less than he loves me. Why? Well, his love is unconditional. It's not based on any condition within me in the first place. Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith, which is a gift, so that no man may boast. The only reason that I am saved is because God, in his sovereign grace, with his free will, not my free will, but his free will, chose to save me. Because I deserved it? Because of anything I did? No, not because of anything I did, not because of any decision I made. It is of his own sovereign grace and free will, which means it is a mercy, which means I should tremble before him. I should tremble before him, knowing that he has given me that gift. How often have I transgressed his name? How often do I continue to sin against him, but what does he do? He continues to love me. He continues to love me because I deserve it, because I'm a good person. Trust me, I know myself. I know my heart. I know that I am not that. I know that I don't deserve it. Yet he glorifies himself and that he loves a wretched sinner like me to this very day and this very moment. My friends, I am not more favorable to God than you, and you are not more favorable to God than anyone else. The Bible leaves absolutely no room for any of us to boast. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? Well, it's extremely relevant. We're talking about love amongst the brethren, to love our brothers and sisters in the faith. So we need to understand that our Heavenly Father does not favor any one of us more than the rest. It's kind of like a kid who asks their mom, the child says to mom, "says mom, who's your favorite kid? And, and and what does mom say? She says, well, I love all of you equally. And then the kid gets mad. Why? Because the nature of that child is to want to be mom's favorite, to satisfy their pride. They want to be loved more than the rest. And And listen, just because... I preach, I'm in the ministry, I do these different things, does not put me in a special class of Christians where I am one of God's extra special elect and, and I sit up high and you're down below. That is not the case at all. That is not the case at all, not for a moment. Were it not for the grace of God, I would be a pagan and a sinner. I do not take credit for anything. And and I don't say this just to sound pious so that you would all look at me and say, well, look at how humble that young man is. It's not not why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because I genuinely know my own heart and my own weakness. Well, what's, what's your point? Well, the point is this. If you are one whom God has shown mercy and grace... And you are one who the Father calls his child, and you are one of the sheep whom the good shepherd laid down his life for, and you are one in whom the Holy Spirit indwells. If you are one of God's beloved, then I as a child of God have an extreme obligation to love you. To love you, to, to see you as more important than myself. To put your needs, to put your interests before my own. What does a parent desire more than that their children get along together or, that, or th- that they get along with the world? Well, obviously, we are members of the same family. We are members of the same household. And so before we can talk about loving the world or doing good to the world, friends, we need to love each other. We, it's so important for us as Christians to maintain unity, to maintain love. Especially in the context of suffering for righteousness' sake. If they are going to ramp up the persecution against Christians in this country, then we, with self-control and with sober-mindedness, we need to evaluate our current situation. We need to recognize how important it is to love each other earnestly. That is, persistently and diligently. For what Peter then says is this. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. You see, here is something that we've all experienced. Even in the context of Christian fellowship, sin is still going to happen. Sin is still going to be present. Why? Well, even though we we have been born again and we are new creations in Christ, we're still dragging around our flesh. That's why Peter tells us to, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. What does that mean? Does it mean that you become saved and therefore you're sinlessly perfect? No. What it means is that when you're saved, you are now enlisted in a battle. You are at war. You are at war. You are presently engaged in a spiritual warfare between the spirit and the flesh. And, and, And any Christian who is not engaged in that battle... I see no scriptural reason to call him a Christian at all. One of the things we must remember to do is that when others sin, especially when it is one of our brothers or sisters in the faith, we must be willing, we must be ready to forgive. Why? Well, this is how love will cover a multitude of sins. You say, well, that's not easy to do. I know it's not easy to do. It's impossible to do. For it to acknowledge it's impossible to do. Because the strength to do it does not come from in here. It does not come from within you. Don't listen to the the, the self-help gurus and all that nonsense that, you know, seek yourself, find yourself, find the power that's within. It's not in you. Do not look inside your heart to find the strength. Do not look inside your heart to find the power to live the Christian life. Why? It's a gift from above. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. It comes from God. He equips me. He empowers me. He strengthens me. I can do all things through myself who strengthens me? No, I can do all things through Him, Christ, who strengthens me. That's what's so important. So I need to love my brothers. I need to forgive my brothers, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, many people, and I think it's appropriate, think Peter is making an allusion to the 10th chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 12, In which we read, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You see, when someone sins against us, how we respond to that will determine much of how that situation will continue. Getting angry, scornful, becoming hateful, unwilling to forgive, what's it going to do? That's just going to increase the negativity and the animosity. And things are only going to get worse and worse. Like a snowball rolling downhill headed for hell. Just bigger and bigger until in the end, what? We're all defeated. That's not what we are to do, loved ones. We are to love one another in Christian fellowship. For love covers a multitude of sins. If someone sins against you and and you are forgiving You will be able to get past that. Okay? You you will be able to move on. Now, you have heard it said, uh, forgive, but don't forget. Well, that's not a Christian principle. Jeremiah prophesies this. He says, the Lord will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now, does God forget our sin in the sense that his memory is faulty or he's not omniscient, he's not all-knowing or anything like that? No, it's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that is simply when God forgives us, it's as though our sin never happened. It's been dealt with on the cross once for all. You say, but I feel like I still need to do something. No. No. It's been dealt with on the cross. And, and our forgiveness, our love for each other, should model the love that God has shown us. You can't say that you've forgiven someone and, and months later you're continuing to bring it up. Okay? You are to forgive that person for love will cover that sin. Get gets you past that sin. So you're not dwelling in that sin. You see, the gospel is, is, is a message of redemption. It's a message of taking you from where you're at and bringing you out, bringing you somewhere higher. Now I don't mean that in a fleshly sense, I don't mean that in a worldly sense, I mean that in a spiritual sense. So in verse 9, continuing down our list, we read, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now this verse almost increases in its intensity when we reflect upon the historical context. You see, Peter is writing in a day and age when Lodging was not something that was readily affordable, and and when the gospel was being spread, it was being spread by men going out on foot, and so on and so forth. And so, when Peter talks about hospitality, he doesn't just mean getting you a cup of water, setting a napkin before you. No, he means the literal idea of opening up your home and allowing someone to stay there for a day or two. So then he says this, he says, without grumbling. Now, for most of us, although it may not always be true, we wouldn't be too concerned with grumbling over simple acts of kindness, simple acts of hospitality, that type of thing. But to open up your home to someone and and allow them to stay there, that that is a a greater extension and, and outflowing of the love that we are supposed to be showing to our brothers. So Peter continues his list of admonitions for the Christian community. In verse 10 he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now the word gift there is the word charisma from which you get the word charismatic. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 when Paul is discussing spiritual gifts. And certainly the context, What Peter is saying here suggests that he's using it in the same way. So the first thing that we need to recognize is that Peter says, as each has received a gift. So what is a plain observation to make based upon this text? That each Christian, every single Christian, has received a gift, a spiritual gift, a charisma. What's a spiritual gift? Wayne Grudem defines a spiritual gift as any ability... That is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. Now, that is obviously a broad definition there, but I believe it's an appropriate one. If you've ever studied this topic, one of the things you will quickly realize is there is not in the New Testament one complete list of spiritual gifts. There are a number of places where spiritual gifts are listed, but no two lists are identical. But what we always find is that a spiritual gift is that which is given by the Holy Spirit specifically, and here's what I want to emphasize, for the work of ministry in the church. Notice what Peter says immediately after he says, as each has received a gift, he then says, use it to serve one another. Now, right off the bat, we need, we need to say something. What Peter is admonishing us towards can only be accomplished in the context of the local church. There's there's no other way around it. It also means that the church should not be a a one hour on Sunday, rush in, watch the service, make sure you're out of there by noon type of thing. You should not have a consumerist mentality when it comes to the local church. It's not about What can the church do for me? It's it's more so, how can I minister to my fellow brothers and sisters in the faith? Christian, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve and minister to your local fellowship of believers. This is so very important because it can be so easily and readily neglected. There are some people who want nothing more than to be like the mega churches where you walk in, they put on a show, and it's just, just this really incredible experience. But what we are finding as we study the scriptures together is that that is not what God's design for the church is. You see, we are to be a fellowship of brothers and sisters who, first and foremost, love each other. We show hospitality to one another. And what does that mean? It means we're involved. It means we're involved. It means I have to be personally involved with what goes on at my church and in the lives of my fellow brothers and sisters. Peter says, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, you have each received a gift. All of you, you've each received a gift. Now use it to serve one another. Then he says, as good stewards of God's varied grace. You see, I've been given a gift by the Holy Spirit, so then I need to use it accordingly. I need to use it wisely, like a talent, like a good steward. There is a passage in John which speaks to this issue that I just so love. It's Jesus, my Lord and my Savior speaking, and he says this. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds his inspired commentary saying, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, you can break Jesus' statement there into two parts. The first part is the invitation. If anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, come to me, and drink. This is an invitation to believe in him. John uses that same terminology in other parts of his gospel. Coming to Jesus means believing in Jesus. Come to Jesus. He will give you living water. The living water which Jesus gives is not just for you to selfishly enjoy for yourself. He then says, and this next portion is, is what you have to offer, what God will do through you. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, when we taste what it is that Jesus has to offer, when we are raised to spiritual life, we don't simply enjoy the blessings for ourselves as though it were some sort of private thing. But God will so work in us that out of our hearts, And the word that John uses does not refer to the organ that pumps blood in my chest. It refers to my innermost being. Out of my innermost being will flow rivers of living water. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Verse 11, Peter says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of god whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that god supplies in order that in everything god may be glorified through jesus christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever amen so peter here he's referencing different kinds of gifts gifts that relate to speech and those which relate to serving so he says whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, that word oracles there refers typically to sayings given by God to man. Now, before you jump out of your pew, Peter is not saying that for those of us who have gifts related to speech, like preaching or teaching, that what we say are the very words of God that would only be true about Scripture, which is God breathed, which is theonoustos. But yet the principle there is, When exercising speech-related gifts, and again, the list in the New Testament is not exhaustive. Preaching would be a spiritual gift, but so would speaking words of wisdom. So would be speaking words of encouragement. And so when exercising these gifts, we ought to conduct ourselves and treat our words with the respect and reverence as though what we were saying were the words of God meaning that what we say is important. Now, you know, when I see the silly, groovy preachers running around on the platform screaming in in a high-pitched voice and and that type of thing to excite his congregation, I I know that that man does not believe and is not conducting himself as though the words he was saying were a very oracle of God. Yet in the same way, for those of you who are gifted, with speech gifts that are not necessarily public, they're not preaching, they're not teaching, but you have a a, a more private one, when you exercise that gift, there's to be a sense of reverence there so that the person that you are talking to recognizes what you're saying is important, that it should be listened to. Now, the next thing Peter says is, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now again, very broad category here, but the key principle is this. As you serve, conduct yourself as though the very strength in your arms was given to you by God and God alone. After all, that's why we call them spiritual gifts. Why is this important? Because even when we are converted, our flesh remains with us. So that even the very best deed of the very best man as a son of Adam, there will remain a pound of flesh. And so sometimes even when we do good things, when we do selfless things, there's always a little bit of sin in there somewhere. There's always a temptation perhaps maybe to become proud. You know, look at how great I am. You know, I got out of my seat to walk over there and and hand him a napkin, you know, Peter recognizes this danger. And so when you serve, you ought to serve as by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, when you serve, the goal should be not to bring attention to yourself, not to glorify yourself, but that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. Not you, not I, but God. So then, after this passage, which is filled with exhortations as to how the local Christian churches to operate, Peter ends with this sort of doxology. And I hope I'm not being irreverent as I say this, but when I see these doxological passions or portions of Scripture, I just imagine Peter sitting there, pen in hand, just becoming consumed with the filling of the Holy Spirit and overpowered by his love for Christ that he just can't contain himself and he needs to get this statement out about the loveliness of God saying to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So then this would be a very fitting place to close tonight's message. I know I sound like a broken record, but I'm going to continue to say it, so hopefully it will stick with you. Peter is writing to a Christian audience that is experiencing hostility for their being Christians, hostility for their being Christians, and so he wants to give us instruction on how to suffer for righteousness' sake, and so what we see right here is a lovely passage on the beauty and importance of the local church. Now, the purpose for all this is simply and singularly to give glory to God. You see, when we talk about the importance of the church, it's not the church for the church's sake. Okay, it's not the church for the church's sake, but it's the church for God's sake, to give glory to Him. Soli Deo Gloria. And and as we leave here tonight, let us strive by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to do all things to His praise. For to Him, belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to join me in a word of prayer.